Hello, and welcome to the Alchemy of Art podcast with your host, Addie Hirschton. Join us as we share folk tales and true stories about artists and the creative process. Our quote of the day was said by Picasso. Art washes away from the soul the dust of everyday life. Hello everyone, my name is Addie Hirschton, a, a contemporary impressionist painter, art instructor, author, and public speaker. The purpose of this podcast is to share stories about art and the creative process to inspire you and help you move forward. On the show, I interview artists from a wide variety of mediums so that we can learn from each other's processes and philosophy. Today's podcast features an interview with the singer-songwriter Bobby Lancaster and uh, a personal story from my life called The Kite. Announcements. I've got a lot coming up in the next couple of months. On March 30th, any of you in Indianapolis are welcome to join me for um, an art opening at Petroff's Fine Art and Frame on College. It'll be the evening of March 30th. It'll be a springtime show, so an artist and I are going to get together and put up all uh, springtime-themed material. And then on April 7th, I have a first Friday opening at the Harrison Arts Center, and the show I'm going to be participating in is called Petal Pushers, so they're all uh, flowers and, and uh, paintings from the garden. Um, that's going to be an interesting show. I can't just wait to see what other artists are contributing to that one. So again, that's uh, Petal Pushers, April 7th. Um, on June 10th, for any of you fellow painters here in Indy, I've got a flower painting party that's going to happen at the Hatch. I'll be hosting that. I'll be bringing flowers from my garden for us all to paint together. It'll be a grand good time. Um, and then, of course, I've got uh, two books that are going to be coming out very shortly. One is called The Happy Kite. It is a, um, a based on a true story, and I'll tell more about that later in the show. Um, and it is an illustrated children's book, and my daughter is in it. She is uh, the main character in it, so I'm going to bring it out just in time for her birthday. <laughs> so, And then this summer, I have another book coming out that's called The Alchemy of Painting, and that's a how-to painting guide. It tells things like... Um, how to get a good composition, how to mix your colors, how to get good color harmonies, and all of that good stuff. That'll be called The Alchemy of Painting, coming out this summer. I cannot wait to share that with you guys. Now, without further ado, here is my interview with Bobby Lancaster. Bobby Lancaster is a songwriter based in Greencastle, Indiana. Bobby is in practicing the art of songcraft for 20 years and also shares her talents with students through the Arts for Learning Teaching Artists Organization. She's a versatile performer and Bobby works with a, within a variety of genres, including those that appeal to kids. Bobby has written and recorded nine albums of original music in the blues, bluegrass, folk, children's music, and gospel genres. 
I found out about Bobby and met her back when we both lived in Bloomington uh, a number of years ago. And my daughter was little at the time, so you know, anytime there was a children's music performance that she did, we just had to go. And uh, Emmeline was your biggest fan <laughs> at the time. And we also had the uh, good fortune of being able to go when when Bobby recorded the Little Folks 2 uh, CD. So it was a live recording, live studio audience, and it was really fun to be there. Um, that CD uh, and all her others are available on CD Baby and iTunes. And you can find out more about Bobby on her Facebook fan page, Bobby Lancaster Songwriter. So welcome, Bobby. Hi, thank you. <laughs> First question, what is the story of how you became a songwriter? Honestly, I don't know that a songwriter is something I became. I think it's something that I have always been. It's just kind of how I was wired and created. Mm -hmm. um, but when I was in college, I started writing just a little bit. Um, and, and I didn't play an instrument well at that period of time, so I kept a journal, and I just wrote little bits and pieces. Mm -hmm. um, but I didn't realize I was a songwriter until I started singing with a band. Um, and I was with a blues band that I met at a blues jam in Indi or in Bloomington, Indiana. Okay. And the name of that band was Code Blue. Okay. Um, we were at a blues jam and after I sang, I think I sang like Mustang Sally or something like that. And I had a group of men come up and talk to me for a little bit. And one of them said um, that, you know, he was a doctor, but he was also a harmonica player. And would I be interested in singing? in their band. And, um, I just thought they were lying. Um, I kind of thought, sure, you're a doctor. I've heard that one before. Right. You know, and apparently they told me later I had my, uh, my hair all pulled up in a bun, which I did in the summertime anyway. And I've always been a fan of kind of long skirts and it was a chilly night. So I had on a sweater and apparently they thought I was Pentecostal. So they weren't sure what was going on with me either. Um, but we ended up connecting and, um, Working with them really kind of opened me up to who I was in new ways. You know, when you're in your early 20s, you don't really know who you are yet, you know. And, and that kind of, I think, set a big part of me free. And after just um, learning how to be a singer, learning how to work with a band, um, I brought a song to them that I had written. And they were generous because I wasn't a good communicator. I wasn't really a musician. I was kind of a just a... Um, I don't want to say just a singer because that, that can be offensive. Um, but I didn't have a grip on what it meant to be a real working part of a band. So when I brought them this song, they gave their best to it and turned it into something beautiful. And that song was called Another Lover, and it was on our first album. The first album I ever recorded was with Code Blue. So I think that was the start of something, and uh, a start of something that continues to this day. So how do you write songs, you know, the new songs? What's your process for brainstorming? And, you know, does it happen in the shower that you all of a sudden come up with an idea? Often what? it will happen while I'm driving. Um, okay. Back before the iPhone, I think mostly because when I'm driving, I'm sitting still. Yeah. And I have a, mostly a singular focus. Okay. And back when, um, oh, I guess... I was in my early 20s again when I was really writing and it really started happening for me. But I would be driving and just have this time 
by myself where I was sitting still and a melody would come to mind or a phrase would come to mind. And if I was driving, of course, I couldn't write it down often. Sometimes I would pull over and write it down on whatever I could find. Um, but sometimes I would also call home and sing it to the answering machine and hope that I got home before my husband did and thought, what is this? You know. Um, but that was kind of uh, the way that I captured things for a while. And a lot of times it was very spontaneous. Okay. Um, as I grew as a songwriter and was given um, different avenues of work, um, I started to be a little more strategic about how I was writing and what I was writing. Um, so many times in the early days, I was just emotionally jarred or affected, and song came bursting out of those moments where I was either, in, you know, on the mountaintop or in the valley, you know. I ended up, I think I really started having a strategy after my children were born and I was working at the Y, which is, I think, where we, did we meet at the Y? Maybe. Okay. Maybe. So I can't remember. <laughs> I, I, I was working there because I could be there and the kids could be on site in the childcare sure. area. Sure. And um, after being there for a little while, they needed a preschool teacher. And I could use a little extra money at that point in time. I was playing in a band and I had learned how to play the mandolin by then and was kind of doing my own thing folk music wise. But um, when I got the job as a preschool teacher, I had to make lesson plans. And rather than teach myself and look for these songs on the internet to teach in my two, three-year-old class, I started just writing songs for the purpose, you know? So I think that was the first time I really had a focus and something to work for. And the writing was outside of me instead of coming from a place that was completely with, within me. Okay. So I know the first children's song that I wrote was called Bananas, and I used the theme from Batman and made it really highly interactive because I had a couple of really rotten little boys in my class that just couldn't sit still and didn't want to sit down and learn stuff. But if I gave them something to do, they could engage with that and they really connected that way. So that kind of, I think those little boys were very integral to how I um, ended up writing children's music. So those lesson plans turned into an album. And then um, that album turned into a connection with a local library, and that library turned into a connection with the Indianapolis libraries. And um, they've contracted me for the last five or six years to come and do the rounds, which has nice. been a wonderful way to make a living. So yeah. it's, it's interesting how things kind of snowball and happen. <laughs> but yeah. True enough, true enough. So can you describe how you work with the students in your programs with the Arts for Learning organization and you go into schools and how do you get them to interact with you? How do you get them to participate and what happens in those? Okay, sessions? so a lot of times um, when I'm doing songwriting now, I've had the opportunity through the Arts for Learning organization, which snowballed out of the children's performances and just connections made along the way, They've sent me to children's hospitals to work bedside with sick kids. Um, they have sent me into elementary schools where we, I, we've given, we've been given the theme of, uh, I don't know, American history. We've written songs based on uh, bullying, and um, we've written theme songs for their school. Just lots of different 
lots of different themes and lots of different purposes for my interaction with the students, which I think is why my workshop works well. You know, it's it's student-driven. So if, if the teacher's working in, a, in an area of curriculum where she just needs or he needs something extra to really solidify that lesson, that songwriting workshop with Arts for Learning has been really handy. So when I go in, I tend to come in the door and just welcome them and tell them just a little bit about myself so that they know I've got a little bit of credibility. And then um, I'll tend to play a song for them. I'll give them a couple choices. And a lot of times, even if they're in middle school, we'll do that banana song, Mm -hmm. (laughs) even though it was written for little kids. But the banana song has such a clearly defined chorus and bridge and verse that it's a great way to illustrate what those parts of the song are and what they do. So that's kind of the first big lesson that I try to instill in them, the parts of the song and the job for the song. So for instance, I try to tell them that the chorus has the the very specific purpose of stating the theme of the song. The verses have the job of giving detail and telling the story to connect chorus to chorus. And then the bridge is often a way to restate that theme in a new and exciting way with a different melody and uh, a different chord structure. So that gives them an idea of where we're going. They give me the theme in advance. The children are are in charge of doing the brainstorming. And depending how old, um, how old they are, um, I try to put as much of the work into their hands as possible and then just try to shape them along the way and give them suggestions along the way. Okay, okay, and so they're coming up with the words and the phrases and then you're just on the fly adding a melody to the background? Well, we usually try to work on that chorus first because we want a strong theme. I mean, that's important in any kind of writing that you've got your strong theme and everything can tie into that theme. So um, we'll usually come up with the chorus first and often that will come up with a melody. If one of the kids is musically gifted, I try to allow that to happen and come from them. And if they need a little help, then I'll jump in there and help them. But once we've got that melody, it makes it easy to kind of branch into the verses. The chorus and the first verse are always the hardest things to write because there's no box to work in. We're creating the box. We're creating the structure. But once we've got that chorus and that first verse written, the rest of it's a piece of cake. So, um, yeah, you know, I, I... Again, try to give it as much to them and let it be theirs as much as possible. And I think that's why it's an effective learning tool also. You know, it's theirs. It comes from them. It belongs to them. They're participating completely in the construction of it. Um, And it's been awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. So my next question is a funny kind of a question. Um, How do you balance using words versus notes to convey a message of the song? And I, I kind of relate this to, you know, say I have a painting and it doesn't have to have a title, you know, but if I, if I have the title, then it's going to give a lot of context and the people who see it might have a better understanding of where I was coming from. So, you know, you could have a song that has no lyrics, but all the emotion and all the meaning is in the notes and the, the way you convey it. Yes. Um, do you have any thoughts on that? Well, I think the kind of music you're describing mm. is beautiful and moving and not what I do <laughs> because right. I come at it from a words perspective. Yeah. yeah. Um, but, you know, when you're looking at a song, you've got just a very few words to tell a powerful story. Right. Or to engage somebody yeah. in an emotional context. Um, so words really matter. Yeah. Um, yeah. You don't want to use 
boring words like pleasant or nice. You want to use powerful words. You don't want to use words that, that uh, are really neutral. You know what I mean? Right. So again, depending on your theme and the purpose for your song, you know, the words do matter. I think musically for me, maybe it's because I'm kind of from a folk music perspective, and maybe it's, I, I gravitate toward toward a less is more approach musically. Mm-hmm. I have worked with some amazing people, but there is a difference between a musician who can play a bazillion notes in a measure and a musician who knows what notes that song needs. Right. And it's been right. wonderful to, to connect with people who really, as an artist, understand what does this song require of me. So often I, I love a less is more approach okay. when it comes to the musical background behind a song. T-Bone Burnett is one of my favorite music producers. He's okay. produced Gillian Welch and, uh, gosh, so many people I can't even really dig in to tell you, but he has this way of making, you can hear every single note, every single instrument plays because it's all there for a reason. It's not a big wall of sound. Right. You know what I mean? Right. And while that seems like a simple way to do it, I found in producing several um, albums... That is the hardest sound to discipline yourself to make. Okay. Because you can do so much more. Right. But what you want to do most of the time is just give that song exactly what it needs, which if you're singing and you're telling stories of people's lives, or you're trying to create emotional experience, you don't, want, you don't want anything to take away from that experience for them. You know, and sometimes a single note or a moment of silence will speak more into that person's soul than anything you could say. Sure. You know? Sure. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. And, and uh, yeah, sorry if it's an awkward question, um, but, yeah, it's... I, I guess I asked it because so much of your your work is very message-driven. You know, it's very meaningful. Um, a lot of the kids' stuff, it's like the, there's a moral message or, you know... I'm even thinking there was the one, the Little Red Riding Hood one, where it was, you know, lesson to the story, don't talk to strangers. And yes. that sort of, I mean, <laughs> like a lot of it has this this real meaning and drive behind it. Mm-hmm. And, a, and much of that is conveyed through the words. But then there's this another part of it. It's a whole other element, the music behind it, that's it's reinforcing that message. And it's it's a... It's hard to make that connection, and you do it well. Oh, well, <laughs> yes. thank you. Yes. Thank you. All right. My last question for you is, what advice would you give to your younger artist self? Oh, my gosh. that <laughs> I could probably talk for an hour about all the things I'd love to go back in time and tell my younger artist self. Um, and I've thought about that question a lot. I think, first and foremost, I would say don't stop piano lessons. <laughs> Do it. Do the piano lessons. Even if you don't want to do it, it will serve you well. And I wish I had continued with that. Um, Hey, Kitty. I also wish I hadn't taken myself so seriously. Um, I think when I went, when I took the jump between playing music for fun and playing music for a living, um, something changed within me. And I don't know that it changed for the worst, but I do think I lost some of my joy. And I think um, if I would have taken myself a little less seriously and just enjoyed the ride a little bit more, 
I think my my 20s and my early 30s would have been so much more enjoyable for me and I think I would have had more balance and harmony in my personal life and my professional life. Right. I think I would have seen opportunities so much differently and I think I would have treated the people around me very differently too. Mm. Not that I was a horrible person. I mean, there are definitely things in my my past that could label me that way. But I just think I, if I had had that perspective on joy and kindness and just enjoying life instead of feeling driven, mm. I think I would have been a very different artist and maybe be in a different place right now. I don't know. Right. And I guess the other little bit of advice that I would want to give myself is the truth of what I do. The truth of what I do is not create music. It's, it's a vehicle that is used. And I didn't realize this about myself for a long time. <laughs> Your timing is great. Talk about not taking yourself seriously. Thank you, Kitty. But I think what I've realized in time is that one of my major giftings is allowing other people to feel. And I think music, painting, any kind of art form, an artist is given maybe hypersensitive emotions and um, a very interesting perspective on the world and usually a wide open heart and I think those things are given to the artist because the more you live life the more that feels like it's it's taken away from you as a human being you've got to be strong for this you've got to be tough for this or you've got to be less sensitive so that you can survive you know and I think when you look at people and what music they gravitate toward I think it says a lot about their personality Um, And I think the people who have been gravitating toward my music, maybe not the children's stuff so much, because that's all about joy and fun and, yes, being a good person. Mm -hmm. But I think some of my other work, whether it be in the bluegrass or folk genre, even the blues genre, and especially the faith-based gospel music that I'm now immersed in and giving Mm -hmm. my life to, Mm -hmm. I think what my main gifting has always been is allowing people to feel and I think when people came to blues gigs, they were wanting to blow off some steam and have a really good time and maybe connect with that grittiness that they're feeling inside, you know? Yeah. And when you're dealing with folk music and, and a lot of bluegrass, that's, that's a lot of storytelling. And there's a lot of sad stuff in that genre. There's a lot of joy and happy, too. But it's an emotional connection that you're making with people. And, you know, in the, in the gospel music genre, not only are you helping people open up their lives and their hearts, but you're trying to help them connect with, with God. Whatever form or whatever word you want to use for God, that's the purpose for music in a church setting, in a faith-based setting. Um, and now you're doing that a lot. And now I'm Can doing that a lot. Can you about your new job just a little bit and how you're using music in that job? Yeah. So um, I am now... I don't, I don't quite know how to title myself. Um, I kind of like the, the title of creative director or worship leader or music minister, but that's what I do now. I am with a church um, in Greencastle, Indiana. We have between four or 500 people that come on Sunday mornings. And every Sunday, I work with the lead pastor to, to use um, the scriptures and to develop a Sunday morning service that includes scripture reading and spoken word and worship music, opportunities for people to just connect and to be together and to do something communally. I have a team of about 50 people between 
people that do the technical side of things and people that play in the band and people that sing. And um, I schedule them and try to inspire them and try to love them well and make sure that, uh, that I know how they're doing personally and spiritually and help them grow um, not only as musicians but as people and as people who are seeking to be part of, part of a bigger plan. So that's oh. my world now, and I'm, I'm blessed to be there and thankful to be there and never thought I would be there. But that's kind of been the story of my music. I have ended up in all sorts of places that I never intended to go and never imagined I would be, but um, yeah. it's been a good journey. Yeah, and there's more to come. I certainly yeah. hope so. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm so glad you're in a place that's a, a good fit for you right Thank now. you. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Well, um, that about wraps it up. So... If there's anything I didn't ask that you want to share, any anything else? Uh, I don't know. If there's anybody listening that is an artist at heart, I would just continue to uh, encourage you to be that. Be what you were made to be and do it from a joy place and, and let it be whatever it needs to be. It already has a mind of its own. Your creativity <laughs> already is going somewhere. So just let it be and enjoy it. Yeah. Right on. <laughs> well, thank you, Bobby, for coming on the show. Thanks, Addie. It's good to see you again. And now for our story of the day. The kite. One day, a group of students made kites in an art class. Once they had decorated them and attached the string, they rushed outside to test how well the kites would fly. Even though it was a very windy day, none of the kites would stay in the air. They would spin and then plop back to the ground. One of the students' parents piped in to say, well, there was just too much wind. It would be best to wait until the wind died down a bit. But we need wind for the kites to fly, exclaimed one of the children. And the mother just shook her head. She said, trust me, I've flown many kites over the years. You can't have too much or too little wind. It has to be just right. The children were sad. And some thought it was the design of their kites that was to blame. But when they returned the next day, however, the kites caught the wind just fine. Okay, so this is a story that did happen to me, I witnessed in real life um, with my work teaching for the Indianapolis Art Center. And I included this story in my book, The Alchemy of Art Stories for the Classroom. And I wanted to talk about this story, this story in relation to what Bobby said, because, um, you know, at the end there, she mentions how she ended up in places where, you know, she didn't think she would. And Sometimes you you can force things, but if it's not the right moment, it's not the right time, it's just not going to work. And so sometimes we want to have a trust where we we let go. If something's not working, we just say, okay, right, maybe this is not the moment. We'll come back to it tomorrow, and maybe then the time will be right. And, you know, maybe... Um, in, in relation to someone's artwork and their progress, you know, say they 
they try something new, like they try to create a very realistic painting, for example, and it's just not working. It's not working. It's not working. Well, maybe if they start fresh tomorrow, or maybe uh, they just have to work on other things for a while and then come back to it. And then everything they've learned from all their classes will fall into place. Um, So this little kite incident is something I think about a lot. And uh, one of the things that happened after the incident in the classroom, I ended up taking my kite that I had made home to my daughter. And then we said, okay, let's go to the park and we'll fly the kite. And it did take several tries. And uh, in the end our kite flew and then I ended up taking that story, just the story of my daughter taking the kite to (laughs) the park and turning it into a whole other story. (laughs) This called the happy kite and I illustrated it and it's finished now. By the time this airs, the book will be available on Amazon. If you would like to uh, purchase it, see the illustrations, share it with your children. I'll also have it on my website, azurefineart.com. And again, the, the title of the new book is The Happy Kite. It's funny how one little thing can just turn into another and another and another. I'm reminded of the... Uh, Jewish folk tale that was turned into a picture book. It's called Joseph Had a Little Overcoat. Um, in that story, the guy has a coat and then it gets worn out and then he makes it into a jacket and then he, it get the jacket gets worn out and he makes it into a tie and then the tie gets worn out and he makes it into a button and then one day he loses the button itself. But then now he has a story to tell. Um, and so moral to all of this mess that I'm taking home today is you got to be flexible. You got to go with the flow. Um, you got to have some faith (laughs) and it'll all work out. So as I said before, the kite story is one of the ones found in my book, the alchemy of art stories for the classroom. This concludes our Alchemy of Art podcast for today. May these stories about art and the creative process inspire you. May you find your voice. You have been listening to the Alchemy of Art podcast. To find out more about Addie Hirshton and her work, go to azirfineart.com. That's A-Z-H-I-R-F-I-N-E-A-R-T dot com.